0: Hello, American. Happy Monday. Welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. We've got an incredible show for you. We're going to start here with the American election, which is now just eight days away from being decided. Control of Congress, the midterms. Republicans appear to be rising in the poll. Democrats appear to be falling so much so that even blue states like New York have concerns among their Democratic candidates that there could be some upsets even in those sort of states. What does that portend? Well, it portends that we need to watch in the final week of this election, election integrity, like we've been doing all throughout the year here at Just the News and John Solomon Reports. And we've got a great guest to join us, and we're going to talk to him about a story we broke on election integrity this morning with Republicans in Congress sending official congressional oversight people to be election observers in key races and beginning to open investigations into irregularities already detected in the election. We're going to ask Congressman Andrew Clyde about that. Why? Because he sits on two of the most important committees in Congress, the House Homeland Security Committee and the House Oversight Committee. Both of them are going to be looking at election integrity in the next year. And then we're going to talk to him about a story we are going to break in the morning. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you will find this story on justthenews.com. We have obtained, through congressional investigators, memos from federal agencies reporting to Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, trying to comply with President Joe Biden's executive order earlier this year that encouraged federal government agencies to get involved in voter registration. By the way, something that's not in the law. There isn't a law that Congress passed saying, hey, federal agencies get involved. As you know, registration is often, has always been a function of the state under federalism. But Joe Biden wants to ramp it up. Well, two federal agencies we're going to focus on in tomorrow's story. USDA, the Agriculture Department, well, they're targeting food stamp recipients. Those people who are in welfare and need assistance with meals and food for voter registration. They're going to use the SNAP, their Supplemental Nutrition food stamps, to try to persuade them to register to vote. A lot of people concerned about this because you're targeting a vulnerable population. And then the Labor Department, we have this complete plan obtained by Just the News showing that the Labor Department is targeting people who are going to federally funded job training, resource centers, people who are trying to get a job, they're trying to get trained. They also are vulnerable, and they're also being targeted under the Biden administration's plan for voter registration. A lot of people I'm talking to, including the great Voting integrity expert Phil Klein, former Kansas attorney general, believes that this targeting of vulnerable populations is designed to coerce vulnerable people to register in favor of Democrats or to assume that they should vote for Democrats because they're getting their benefits from a Democratic administration, their job training, their food stamps. Now, the federal agencies say, oh, no, this is nonpartisan. But when you look at who the Labor Department specifically targets in these documents, young voters, Native American voters seeking job training, people on welfare. These are people who have traditionally voted more Democrat than Republican. So it looks almost as though there's a government-sanctioned form of Democratic voter registration, kind of like what Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook founder, did with his Center for Tech and Civic Life in the 2020 election, where he dumped $300, $400 million into a voter registration effort during the pandemic. So we're going to ask Congressman Clyde about that. Is that troubling to him? Does it feel like targeting vulnerable constituencies to vote, or at least to register to vote, and then think you must vote for Democrats, because that's where you assume you got your benefits. We're going to talk about that. Then when we finish up with election integrity on this side of the ocean, we're going to go over to the Middle East and Israel. Former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer, is joining us. He's going to talk to us about the election that happens this Tuesday, not next Tuesday. Our election is a week from this Tuesday. But tomorrow, Israel is having its fifth prime minister election. In four years, actually three and a half years, and we're going to talk to Ron Dermer about is his former boss, Benjamin Netanyahu, going to make a political comeback? Will he win the 61 seats in the Knesset that he needs to become prime minister? We're going to cover that plus all the forces that are at work in the election in Israel, the Iran deal, the warming of relations with Sunni Arab neighbors, the rising prices in inflation. Israel has been incredibly disproportionately hit hard by inflation. We're going to ask them about how all those things factor together. And then the wild card in the election, as it often is in recent years, Arab Israelis, how will they vote in the Palestinian Bank and other places? We're going to get the lowdown from one of the most learned of Israeli observers one of its great security experts, its former ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer, in the second half of the show. That is a one-two punch to start off a very busy and important. We're very proud of that. Congressman Andrew Clyde, followed by Ambassador Ron Dermer. By the way, he is the host of one of my all-time favorite podcasts in the global space. If you haven't listened to it, it's called Diplomatically Incorrect. It is an outstanding podcast. You should listen to that. All right. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we're going to come back with back-to-back interviews. But before we do that, just a quick note. Everyone last week heard the great interview we did with AMAC and all of the things it is doing at AMAC Action, including organizing election observers and so much more. And many of you said, hey, can you remind me, John, how I get involved with AMAC? How can I sign up and get the Just the News, John Solomon reports, special discounts, start getting those Discounts on services, those offers for services like Medicare insurance and all the news and intelligence and advocacy work that AMAC does. It is really simple. All you got to go to the website, amac.us. AMAC stands for Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S for United States, dot U-S forward slash Just News. Let me give you that again. amac.us forward slash Just News. That's how you can get a special discount to join AMAC. I signed up for the five-year membership. You should too, but match me if you can. If you can't afford that, do one year. Get in the game. Enjoy all of the political intelligence and lobbying work that they're doing. They're great. Podcasts. They're incredible discounts. It's like AARP or AAA. Great discounts on so many products that they make available. It is an all-around amazing membership. It's going to pay for itself multiple times over. Go check it out today at AMAC, A-M-A-C slash Just News. That's how you get signed up. A lot of people were asking me that last week. That's how you do it. All right, folks, we're going to take that commercial break. Congressman Andrew Clyde from the great state of Georgia right after the break. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. We've been talking about for some time, if Republicans gain control of the Congress in these midterm elections, how important oversight will be, how important Homeland Security and the oversight of Homeland Security with an open border will be. Our next guest sits on two of the most important committees, Homeland Security and the House Oversight Committee. He is Congressman Andrew Clyde from the great state of Georgia. Congressman, great to have you back on the show.
1: Well, John, it's great to be back on the show. Thank you uh, for the opportunity to talk to your audience.
0: It's a great honor. And the last time we talked, the new border numbers had not yet come out. Now we have them, 2.4 million illegal crossings, 600,000 estimated gotaways, 98 terrorists, 850 people dying trying to get across our border, a complete statistical disaster. When you look at it, your reaction?
1: Uh, this is an uh, confirmation of complete lawlessness at our southern border. And this is a direct, a direct consequence of Joe Biden's open border policies. And it is damaging to the American people. I mean, we have seen 107,000 people die from drug overdoses, of which 70% of those are from uh, synthetic opioids, fentanyl. If fentanyl is pouring across our border, I mean, there was enough fentanyl uh, caught uh, come trying to come across the border that can kill 3 billion people. I mean, this is insane. Um, this is our country's population like eight times over. It's just, uh, it, it is bringing the border to every solitary community in the United States. Every border Every community is a border town now, and um, and Joe Biden's policies are directly responsible for this. You quoted the numbers right. You know, how can it be compassionate to have an open border policy and have over 850, I think 856 was the exact number, uh, of of illegals die on our southern border in a year, just one year, and then you've got 2. 4 million almost 2.4 million that uh, tried to illegally cross. 600,000 gotaways, and how many of those gotaways were actually suspected terrorists? So were on the terrorist watch list? We know 98 of the 2.4 million, you know, 98 were caught and were determined. But but if you're a, a terrorist and you want to get into this country, you don't want to get caught. You want the 600,000 that got away, or and, th- and, and when we talk about the 600,000 that got away, that's not talking about those that we didn't see. Those gotaways are estimates based on things like triggering an alarm or seeing them on video but not being able to get there in time to actually apprehend them. What about ones that we've not actually seen or had any sort of a, of a, a, a sensor triggered to indicate that they're coming across? Um, these are bad people. And this is a really bad situation. This, as I said earlier, is lawlessness at the border, and Joe Biden is promoting it. Yeah,
0: it's stunning, the numbers. And they're exactly what you predicted last time around. Well, where we were going to end up, you're right on the money. Meanwhile, we have a Homeland Security Department that says, well, the border is secure, which obviously nobody believes, but also they're spending a lot of time working with social media companies to censor material of Americans. They created this conglomerate of private entities that they're working with. The private entity makes a request on behalf of the federal government. How concerning is it that Homeland's less focused on terrorism and more focused on information flows?
1: Well, you know, we had quite a few uh, hearings in, in Homeland regarding CISA, you know, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency and you know they they do a great job in helping protect our small businesses and large businesses and uh but this aspect of what they're doing is incredibly concerning they have no authority whatsoever to be getting this this conglomeration of of entities together so that they can submit to sisa tickets uh, of quote misinformation, so CISA can then forward it to uh, the the big tech folks like Facebook and um, uh, you know Instagram and what what was on Twitter and and I think uh, I think Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter is actually going to be a very good thing for free speech in the United States, but um, but for CISA to be involved, this is government censorship by proxy, and that is uh, you know. What the federal government is not allowed to do directly, they're also not allowed to do indirectly. That is a, a Supreme Court precedent that has you know, tremendous history in the court. So here we are, the federal government, knowing that they cannot censor free speech because of the First Amendment. So they, they try and end run it, try and flank it, by going to these, these big tech um, companies and asking them to do it for them. This is illegal. In fact, I've introduced a bill called the Free Speech Act that would, that would prevent that. It would tell the federal government under no circumstances may they spend one solitary dollar on, uh, on this kind of an end run on our First Amendment rights. Uh, and, and I think the American people would be much, well, I know they would, they'd be much better off when we have free speech. Um, and and not censorship by the government that's socialism that's big government socialism that is not the america that that uh, you and i know and love
0: yeah no doubt about it speaking of elon musk over the weekend after i highlighted the fact that twitter had flagged or put a warning label on a story where all it was was an announcement by florida authorities that they were investigating credible allegations of ballot harvesting in central florida they put a warning on it for a while that said this content may be unsafe Brought it to Elon Musk's attention. To his credit, over the weekend, he lifted that warning, engaged publicly on it, saying, I'm looking into this, and then lifted the warning. Seems like he's off to a good start in trying to reverse a psychology at this big social media company that seemed to be engaged in censorship pretty regularly.
1: Oh, you're right. You know, I'm very encouraged by Elon Musk's intentions here uh, to improve Twitter uh, so, that, uh, so that we don't have a left-wing cabal of employees in in the entire heart hierarchy of Twitter, um, just censoring free speech content. You know, big tech uh, needs to be open, and it's. Uh, I think we have a long way to go in holding big tech accountable, but I think this uh, that Elon Musk's. Uh, takeover is certainly a
0: step in the right direction. Yeah, I think a lot of people were celebrating over the weekend. I saw a lot of, uh, particularly conservatives, but people across the board just encouraged that maybe we could have a complete town hall where every side gets to uh, participate, not just one side and the other side gets silenced. It was very interesting. We have some documents we're going to make public tomorrow that show that several federal agencies have been targeting under President Biden's executive order to increase voter registration targeting vulnerable populations that tend to vote Democrats, farm workers, young voters, people looking for a job, people dependent on welfare like food stamps. I know the House Oversight Committee is likely to look at this. You have some concerns that federal agencies really don't have this authority, right?
1: That is correct. This is not a federal government responsibility. This is a state and local responsibility. Um, for, For the president to be doing this uh, to be issuing an executive order telling the, uh, the agencies of the executive branch that they need to um, encourage voter registration and then target it in such a way. In my opinion, this is no different than uh, Facebook and, and Zuckerberg pouring um, money into Democrat areas to increase Democrat turnover and influence the elections. You know, the federal government should not be influencing elections, and that is what I see happening here. I think it's very worthy of oversight, and when we take back the House, which I'm very confident that we will, and uh, the Republicans will be in the majority of, we will have the gavels, we'll be in the majority, then um, we will look into this. We will look into what, what Joe Biden has been doing. And this is just one of the multiple areas that we're going to have. I mean, this is a target-rich environment, the Biden administration. Uh, and whether it's the Oversight Committee or the Judiciary Committee, both of us uh, will be the primary oversight entities of Congress uh, into what Joe Biden, into the corruption in the Joe Biden administration. And it's not if, but, but uh, we know it's there. We just are going to expose it. The Democrats certainly did not want to do that these last two years. I mean, we had really ridiculous oversight hearings and it was, you know, they even took the word government out of, of um, the oversight committee. You know, it used to be OGR, Oversight and Government Reform, and now it's just the Committee on Oversight uh, because they had no intention of oversight of the Biden administration, of government. Well, that's the entire reason the committee exists is for oversight. And we will. We will. Um, we'll give it good oversight.
0: I forgot about that, that the word government was removed. It makes a very big statement. It kind of explains maybe why there hasn't been much curiosity about government wrongdoing the last two years in Congress. Very interesting. I know one area you've been concerned about. The Biden family is on both sides of the Russia-Ukraine war. Hunter Biden was representing or working for a Ukrainian gas company that had uh, connections to corruption. and Then it also was assisting a Russian oligarch on the other side of this war. Now, the concerns that not only was this a pay-to-play operation for the Biden family, but... A compromising act that the president is on both sides of the war. He's in bed with the Chinese via his family. How big an issue is this going to be for the Oversight Committee next year?
1: Well, I think that, you know, like I said, um, John, this is this a target rich environment? We need to see how compromised Joe Biden is. Uh, you know, we all saw the video where he said, uh, hey, if you don't fire the prosecutor, you don't get the billion dollars. Uh, that is clearly quid pro quo. And I think what we have is quid pro Joe here uh, because he certainly has the most uh, experience at, um, at quid pro quo of any politician I have ever seen. And uh, we are, it is very worthy of oversight. We're going to be looking into uh, everything that he has done with that reg- in regard to that, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in China or Russia, Uh, wherever Joe Biden's business dealings or Hunter Biden's business dealings have been, I think you can be pretty confident that Joe Biden's hands uh, are in there, too, and he has uh, uh, knowledge of it. And so when that happens, you've got to, you've got to wonder, what do these foreign countries have on Joe Biden? And, you know, why is Joe Biden pouring so much money into Ukraine? Does Ukraine have something on him? You know, I, I mean, and uh, I mean, I, I, get, I get that we are uh, um, assisting Ukraine because we don't want their country to fall, but what else is going on there? And we in the Oversight Committee, we're going to investigate that. Uh, and Hunter Biden's laptop will be completely exposed. I think we'll have plenty of hearings on that. Uh, we've already um, uh, mentioned, uh, I think Jamie Comer, our, our um, uh, soon to be chairman of Oversight has, uh, has made that pretty clear. That Joe Biden or that Hunter Biden's laptop is going to be a um, uh, a focus of, uh, of numerous hearings. So um, I'm encouraged about that. Uh, it, it's going to be a good year for Republicans. It's not going to be a good year for the administration, but it's going to be a good year for America, because we expose corruption.
0: Yeah, the, the American public benefits from all this transparency that you will be able to provide in these committees with oversight. It's I think an exciting time. We've had so little transparency the last couple of years, it's frustrating to folks. One area I know a lot of expectation is among voters that if Republicans are put in charge, it it will be the first time in a long time that maybe we shrink government, we shrink down the sizes, we get rid of the large plan to hire 87,000 more IRS agents. Do you feel there's enough will among the Republican caucus to get meaningful cuts in the size of government?
1: Well, I'll tell you that I believe there is. Uh, I have heard that from our current leadership. I have heard that from numerous committee chairs to be ranking members right now, but chairs to be. Uh, And I think the very first vote we're going to have is to um, uh, limit the size of the the increased size of the IRS and eliminate 87,000 IRS agents, you know, to eliminate that authority right there and then to cut their budget. Because we need to be looking at how we can reduce the size of government, reduce the expense to the taxpayer. I mean, think about it. We don't even have a balanced budget right now, which means we have a deficit. We are spending every year more money than we bring in, adding to our national debt. And I'll quote uh, uh, Leader McCarthy right now, when he says that the greatest external threat is China, the greatest internal threat is our national debt. And if that is true, and I believe it's true, then we need to be dealing with that in an aggressive manner. Not status quo and not, you know, um, what we have been doing in the past, just getting along. No, we need to be very aggressive in reducing the size of government. Um, it's what's financially and fiscally responsible. And we in Congress uh, need to prove to the American people when they give us the, uh, the majority back that, um, that we have the American people's best interests in mind. It's an American first agenda. And I'm going to push it. And I'm going to push it with everything I've got. And I know there's a lot of other members of Congress that are going to do the same thing. We're not going to um, uh, disappoint the American people.
0: It's really interesting. I've covered elections for 35 years, and this is an election, unlike very few others before, where you see an entire party consistent in what it wants to do. There's a consistency of message, a consistency of goal, a consistency in the agenda items that will dominate the Congress next year. It's a pretty rare moment to see a whole party kind of singing, not only singing from the same hymnal, but oring in the same direction. That's got to give the American people some encouragement that we're going to get some stuff done that maybe in past years we haven't, right? I agree. I mean, you know, as Republicans, I've heard the term, it's kind of like herding cats because we're, we're very
1: independent minded. We're very liberty minded. We have our own ideas. Um, but we have, we have, you know, a, a joint focus here and it's called the commitment to America. And the commitment to America is based on four pillars. One, an economy that's strong. The two, a nation that's secure. Three is a future based on freedom. And then four is a government that 's accountable, and I am looking forward to implementing every one of those pillars uh, you know th- there's going to be some um uh, some debate on exactly how the implementation of those pillars will be but but as there should be okay but um but that 's what we 're focused on right there, and making it it's making these four pillars happen for the American people. I love the last one, a government that 's accountable. Because if we don't have an accountable government, we don't have a representative republic. Um, and and that's, what, that's what it's all about. You know, it's the, the beautiful um, uh, country that God has given us, uh, the, the experiment of freedom that the world, you know, the freest country in the world is what we are.
0: It is an enormous opportunity to restore that on a path to freedom after a few years of diversion, I would say. But definitely some exciting signs, whether it's Elon Musk, Twitter, what the Republicans have planned for oversight. Congressman, it is such an honor to have you on. Every time we have you on, we learn something really valuable. I really appreciate that.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate your your time, and I appreciate the invitation, John.
0: Yeah, it's a great honor, sir. Good luck in the election. I'm sure we'll have you back on right after Election Day. I'm looking forward to it. All right, folks, when we come back, Ambassador Ron Dermer, the Israeli ambassador to the United States, when Benjamin Netanyahu was a prime minister a while ago, he's going to join us to handicap tomorrow's very important Israeli elections. By the way, the fifth elections in three and a half years in Israel, no better person to get it from than Israeli's ambassador to the United States. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. As mentioned in the opening, I know we got our election on November 8th, but first is a big election across the ocean in Israel. Believe it or not, the fifth one in four years. A very exciting moment. We have the perfect person to come handicap that for us. He is the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer. Mr. Ambassador, great to have you on the show.
1: Good
2: to be with you, John.
0: I'm a big fan of your new podcast, Diplomatically Incorrect, because I love the way you kind of unwind diplomacy and you give people the straight talk, not all the gobbledygook that sometimes enters into diplomacy. Give us the straight talk on what's likely to happen in the next 24 hours in this Israeli election.
2: Well, if, you, if you're listening and you care about politics in Israel and you haven't been paying attention for the last three or four months of the election campaign, you really haven't missed anything. Uh, things have stayed more or less the same. There's a block that is called in Israel the Netanyahu block, and that's in polls at 60, 61, right around the threshold we need. We have a 120-seat parliament. So in order to win, uh, it's not a single party that would get 61 seats. We have a coalition of parties. In the Netanyahu block, there's four different parties, and together they're getting, according to the polls, about 60 or 61 seats. And uh, on the other side, you have an anti-Netanyahu block that is really spread out between centrist parties – leftist parties and Arab parties as well. And they don't really agree on anything uh, except for the fact that they don't want Netanyahu to return to power. So I would say that Netanyahu definitely is in the poll position to win, but it's all going to come out, John, to the turnout on election day and who is going to show up in the polls. I think there's, for those people who uh, are following this, I would say there's three things to look at. Uh, What will the Israeli Arab turnout? Be I mean that has fluctuated pretty widely. You mentioned uh, correctly that this is the fifth round of elections we've had in about three and a half years, and there have been big differences from round to round in terms of the turnout of the Israeli Arab voters, which are about 20% of our population, maybe about 16% of people who are eligible to vote, and that has ranged from a low of 46% to a high of 64%. Right now they're polling around 50% in terms of the projections of how many were going to turn out. I think if it's low. Uh, it's more likely that Netanyahu's camp will get the 61 seats they need to win. If it's high, it'll make it more difficult. There's a second issue to pay attention to, and that is will Likud voters – and that's Netanyahu's party. His party is Likud, which is the center party of the right block in Israel. Uh, will these voters come to the polls? Because in the last round – Tens of thousands of them stayed home. Maybe it was election fatigue. Maybe it was because, because they thought that Netanyahu was going to win and stay in power because he seemed to always find a way, you know, to pull a rabbit out of the hat and stay uh, at the helm. But last time, about 80,000 stayed home. And because of that, Netanyahu didn't win. And I think if those people show up, and there are indications that they're more interested in the election this time, also because they saw what happened the last year and a half when you had a government of the left with the Arab parties. So I think they're motivated to vote. Uh, But it should be said that by and large in Israeli elections, the left-wing parties vote in higher rates than the right-wing parties. So that will be something to look at. What will be the vote? Uh, Of those Likud faithful, the party faithful, will they come to the polls? And the third thing is something you don't have in the the United States. Obviously, turnout is is an issue you'd have here. But we have something called an electoral threshold. And what that means is when people go to vote in Israel, they actually don't vote for individuals and they don't have individual districts. It's like a straight national vote. You vote for the party. And there's about 12 parties in our Knesset and the parties that get seats in the Knesset in our parliament this 120 seat parliament they have to get at least 3 and a quarter percent of the national vote in order to get in if they don't then they just get zero seats if they get 3 and a quarter percent they get four seats so that's the minimum number of seats you can have to get into our Knesset And here there's a big difference between the Netanyahu bloc and the anti-Netanyahu bloc is that none of the parties in the Netanyahu bloc are even close to the electoral threshold, meaning they're all going to get into the Knesset. Whereas in the anti-Netanyahu bloc, there's at least four parties that are polling somewhere between about 2.5% to about 4%. So if one of those parties or two of those parties goes down, then Netanyahu will definitely win the election. So we'll just have to wait. It's going to be a long night tomorrow night, and it's probably going to extend to Wednesday when they count the votes of soldiers. My guess is we will... We will probably know um, several hours uh, after the election. It'll probably be well into the next day before we know. If we know on election night, it probably means that Netanyahu surprised everybody and won a bigger victory than
0: people think. Yeah, that's right. This is interesting because every election obviously turns on national security in Israel. But the economy, particularly the cost of living and inflation, has become much more prevalent in this election than any more recent one how is that factoring into this, and does Netanyahu fare well with those who are worried about the state of the economy?
2: Well, it is the number one issue that voters cite. It's about 50%, but it hasn't been a wedge issue in our politics. People think you know, the problem is a global problem, uh, and I think inflation rates are a little bit lower in Israel than they've been elsewhere. Uh, the part, Netanyahu has made the case uh, pretty consistently that, that he's somebody that they can trust to actually Get the cost of living down because he took over as finance minister when we were facing a huge economic crisis and turned the economy around. He took over after the 2008 collapse and turned the economy around. And so he's done this before. So I think he has a lot more credibility than certainly Yara Lapid, the current prime minister, when it comes to economics. But by and large, economic issues do not drive Israeli elections, even during very difficult economic times because the security challenges are so great. And unfortunately, we've had, uh, John, and you may see this in the news, we've had a kind of wave of terrorism over the last few weeks. You have Israeli security officials are working hard to, to prevent a lot of these terror attacks. But even just yesterday, we had two different terror attacks. And that continues to grow as a problem. So while, while the economy is the number one issue, it doesn't really break down on partisan lines, whereas the security issue tends to break on partisan lines, where the right – Uh, in Israel believes that you have to get much tougher in terms of its anti you know policy against terror and things like this and 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 the left tends to you know want to negotiate more and make deals and negotiations and concessions and things like that so uh, that still I think dominates uh, uh, Israeli elections but this one frankly John has become much more personalized there's been very little discussion about policy during this campaign it's really been a question of for Netanyahu or against Netanyahu and here, uh, the four parties that make up Netanyahu's coalition, last time, last election, about a year and a half ago, they got 52 seats. Now the polls are giving them 60. So they're much, you know, they've already gained pretty significantly. The Eight, eight seats is about a 10% shift. You know, 10% shift in American politics is a really big deal. That's
0: a landslide, right? <laughs> right.
2: So you already have a 10% shift. Now the question is, can you get that extra percent? to get it over the finish line. Because last time around, you may recall, one of the parties that got right-wing votes actually went and made a coalition with the left. And that's why we find ourselves in the situation we're in now. What, what I will say, and maybe you'll invite me back and we can talk after there's results and actually see what that means for the coalition and what, what that means for Israeli policy moving forward, is that Netanyahu's block is very coherent those four parties agree on a lot of things and i think when it comes certainly to security and diplomatic issues which would be of interest i think to americans they pretty much have the same view on the matter and you can get a very coherent uh government from that block the other block is an incoherent yeah
0: all over the map right group
2: of parties and the only thing they essentially agree to is they don't want netanyahu to come back but netanyahu remains by far the most popular political leader In Israel the question is, is he going to be able to turn out the votes that he needs in order to just get over the finish line? It's it's about a tie right now, according to the polls, and it's all going to come down to election day tomorrow.
0: Isn't that amazing? Just that the old-fashioned art of getting voters to the polls. That's always been the key to elections, and that tomorrow will be a big one, I think, to see how Israeli voters turn out. You mentioned the security issue, and I want to turn to Iran for one second, wrap up there, but one of the attacks this weekend was so shocking, not only because they targeted a father and son who were just out shopping, but when the medic came to assist them. He gets shot as a first responder. It seems to me those sort of tactics must really anger Israelis that are trying to find some normalcy in all of the chaos that's going on. Has that been a big factor in the news reporting over the weekend?
2: Yeah, for sure. People are concerned. And I think personal security has emerged, both personal security in terms of uh, terrorism uh, and also just violence. And there's been a lot of also intra-Arab violence, a lot of uh, different gangs and stuff where people are shot up and these tragedies of young Arab children who are caught in some crossfire because there's been a bit of a breakdown uh, over the last year or so and even longer in law and order in the country. So I think there is a a concern with personal security. And one of the parties in Israel, which is the party to the right of Netanyahu's Likud party, they're the ones who have grown in the polls over the last um, um, three months or so. There's less been a, a shift from right to left, but there's been shifts within the right and within the left. And within the right, there was a shift from Netanyahu's party towards an even more right-wing party of a guy named Smutrich and Ben-Gvir. Ben-Gvir was was the person I think is more responsible for it than anyone else and he's positioned himself clearly to the right of Netanyahu and has promised to crack down and to restore law and order and on the left side Lapid who is the current prime minister in Israel, I know it's hard for people to pay attention to this because we keep, ever since Netanyahu left, we seem to be changing prime ministers all the time but the current prime minister of Israel is Yair Lapid and his party has actually gained at the expense of the other satellite parties on the left. So the last polls have the Likud very close – Likud is Netanyahu's party – has it very close to Yair Lapid's party. One poll had it within three seats, uh, and another. most of the other polls have it somewhere around six or seven seats. So when you're looking tomorrow uh, at the results, and certainly the exit polls will come out at 10 o'clock tomorrow, Israeli time – which will be, we we changed our clocks already here. I think you guys are next week. So 4 p.m., everybody can tune in and you turn get on the internet and you'll see all the major television stations will actually publish their exit polls. And they've been pretty good in the past, um, a a pretty good predictor. But when you're dealing with 60-60 or 61-59, a half a percent change within the statistical margin of error can mean everything. But I think one thing to look at is how big is Netanyahu's Likud party is it 30 seats or did it get you know gain back to 33 34 seats and how big is Lapid's party has he closed the gap on Likud almost 30 30 or is he you know at 24 25 seats so we'll have to wait and check whether or not these smaller parties actually get in and cross that 3 and a quarter percent threshold uh, tomorrow you might have uh, an Arab party that people think will not get in, get in, and you might have another Arab party that people think will get in, will all of a sudden not get in to the Knesset. So there's going to be a lot of – it's going to be a long night, uh, and I think it's going to be interesting. But listen, the hope will be, John, after five elections in three and a half years that we actually can form a strong and stable government in Israel that can last for for uh, for the next four Uh, Four solid years because we we have so many challenges in in Israel with Iran, with Palestinian terrorism that you mentioned, with obviously the economic concerns that all countries in the world now are facing because of uh, various different factors. And so Israel facing the challenges that we have. To have an unstable political system is, is really bad. So I hope at the at the other side of this election, we're gonna be able to forge a, a strong, unstable government with a coherent policy.
0: Yeah, and that consistency is good for not only Israel, but for the whole world is, so that people can kind of count on it for a while and, and engage in constructive ways. I wanna ask you about the last thing. We've had a good conversation in the past about Iran. Iran's making the drones that are killing the Ukrainian soldiers that we're trying to defend. Iran is threatened to kill multiple American officials and several people people been arrested. Iran was involved in hacking a voter database here in the United States. There's a federal criminal prosecution of that, hacking some of our infrastructure. This presidency, Joe Biden, banked his presidency and he was going to be able to restore the Iranian deal. How big a setback is it, Iran's bad behavior? And do you think the administration now understands that Iran never has been serious about a good deal for with America?
2: I don't think they thought that they were serious about a good deal. I just think they were wedded to this deal no matter what on the mistaken belief that it's this deal or war or that if there potentially would be a military confrontation that ultimately Iran's going to get nuclear weapons anyway. I think that they've been wrong about Iran from the beginning. Uh, President Trump left them. And the Trump administration left them with enormous pressure that was being brought to bear on Iran. And it took a long time to build up that pressure. They had a credible credible military threat against the Iranian regime because Trump in January of 2020 took out Qasem Soleimani. I would say that for about three – the first three years of the Trump administration, you didn't have a credible military threat against Iran. But since then – they stopped their Iranian nuclear program and they took no new step for about 10 months. They also put enormous economic sanctions on Iran and were crippling that economy. They drove down Iran oil, Iran, Iranian oil sales from about 2.8 million barrels a day to 300,000 barrels a day. And they did this in the face, unfortunately, when Biden was running for president. He said, you know, I'm going to go right back into the deal. And all the, actually, all the Democratic candidates for president at that time said that we're going to go right back into the deal and we're going to remove the sanctions. And so that gave Iran the sense that all they had to do was hold out for another 10 months or another year, and they're going to be able uh, to restore their economy. But Trump left them with a credible military threat with crippling sanctions – uh, and unfortunately, the credible military threat was taken away. And I think what happened in Afghanistan made it clear that there wasn't going to be military action against Iran. I think they're not enforcing the sanctions. They're certainly not sending that signal that, they're, that they mean. Uh, that they're going to continue to put economic pressure on Iran, and all they have done for a year and a half was try to appease the Ayatollahs. And this has been a terrible strategy, but there is new hope. And the new hope, frankly, is the people of Iran, because they took to the streets a little bit over 40 days ago, and you have the courageous men and women, mostly women, because of this woman who was killed and by, uh, by this very brutal regime, and everyone takes to the streets there's thousands tens of thousands of people all around iran, all throughout iran uh, setting fires everywhere and creating huge problems for this regime and this is a regime that is getting virtually no support from the outside world and the united states policy rather than to embrace those protesters rather than give an evil empire speech is what i'd like to see president biden give and call out the leaders of iran What they're doing is still holding out the possibility of ultimately appeasing this regime. And it is a huge mistake. Israel says it's a mistake to do this deal. The Arab states say it's a mistake to do this deal. And now you have in Iran such a dangerous power that is brutally repressing its own people. And as you mentioned, they're also providing the weapons to the Russians, and they're using it. To, to bomb innocent Ukrainians. They're giving him drones and now they're talking about uh, missile technology and giving missiles to the Russians in order to continue to attack Ukraine. So what should happen right now is the United States should announce that it is not gonna negotiate with this regime, it should, Biden should give that evil empire speech like Reagan did and you know, said Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. He should give some speech like this to reset American policy towards Iran. They should snap back the U.N. sanctions. The French and the British can do that with the sanctions that were removed when they did, did the deal originally. And they should embrace the protesters in Iran. I would, I would, I would uh, urge your podcast listeners, there is a woman. Um, her name is Masi Najad. And the Iranians trying to kill her in New York. I mean, she is all over social media. I'm sure, John, you may have seen her on TV.
0: Oh, absolutely. Dynamic.
2: And she has become just a phenom. And they are sending her videos from inside Iran to show the world what the Iranian people are doing. And I think it's people like Masih Ali Najad that everyone has to embrace. If I were President Biden and advising him, I'd say invite her to the Oval Office. Sit with her. Talk about what is happening to the people of Iran. Because that would put wind in the sails of all the Iranians who are struggling for their freedom. When, when Remember, when Reagan gave that evil empire speech... A lot of people said you're going to create World War III, and most of the foreign policy-making crowd, they were all against it, all of it. And the ones who were jubilant were the dissidents inside the Soviet Union. One of them later became my mentor, Natan Sharansky, and he said they were jubilant in the gulag, and they were he said tapping on the walls in Morse code because they were all in, in solitary confinement. They drained the toilets and were using the to- the pipes as a system to speak one prisoner prisoner to the other. Because they had read in Pravda, of all places in Pravda, that Reagan had called the Soviet Union evil empire. And they were ecstatic because they said, finally, someone is bringing moral clarity to this fight. Finally, they're not trying to appease this regime. Finally, someone is willing to stand up to him. And this Masih al and all these people in Iran are pleading with the administration, do not do a deal with these dictators who are trying to repress us. And it's a huge mistake, and I hope that people will wake up. Frankly, John, the only way they're going to wake up is if the American people fully back the people of Iran in this struggle, and if there are people like you and other people in the media who are shining the spotlight on what Iran is doing to its own people, and how Iran is actually helping Russia kill Ukrainians. If that gets exposed and exposed and exposed and exposed, then maybe the administration will walk away from what would be a disastrous deal and shift their policy. And if they do that, this is the last point. If the administration does that and can bring the French and the British and the Germans on board, and they see what's happening in Ukraine because it's in their backyard, if they can shift this policy, not only will it be better for the security of the region – in the Middle East, it will also help advance peace because under such leadership, Saudi Arabia and other potential allies in the region can come under U.S. leadership and and I think continue the remarkable breakthrough that we had with the Abraham Accords and actually get a peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia that would be a bulwark of stability for the whole region.
0: It sure would. It would be game-changing. We're right on the one-yard line of that happening if all these other things can get resolved. It's such a remarkable moment. Mr. Ambassador, it is always an honor to have you on the show. It's an honor to listen to your great podcast as well, Diplomatically Incorrect, folks. Go check that out. One of the best in the world. Sir, we'll get you on after the elections and try to make sense of all that's happened there.
2: Absolutely. Look forward to it. Take care. We're going to vote here and you vote there and, and then we can talk about it. We can
0: it. compare notes. <laughs> exactly. Very good, sir. Great honor to have you. Thank you, folks. We'll take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages. Find love at first drive
1: and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying
0: should be. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. So grateful you can join us. Hey, check out Just the News in the morning. Just We're going to have that incredible story exposing what the Biden administration, federal agencies are doing to ramp up voter registration and target vulnerable populations, welfare recipients, job seekers, people in need of job training, farm workers, Native Americans. Those are some of the target points that are mentioned. In these exclusive documents we're going to make public tomorrow, you get them first because you listen to the podcast. But check out the story, the very detailed story that myself and my colleague Natalia Middlestat will have in the morning. That's worth a read. And of course, if you want to sign up for AMAC and take advantage of all of the great things that AMAC makes available, the discounts on products, the special services like Medicare insurance, the political intelligence and lobbying stuff they're doing, their great podcasts, their alerts on everything from drug prices to Medicare fraud, all you got to do is go to amac.us slash justnews, amac.us slash news. You get a discount when you sign up for a one, three or five year membership. I signed it for the five year. Hope you match me because when you support AMAC, you're also supporting Just the News, who is one of our advertisers and sponsors. AMAC's a great partner, strategic partner for Just the News. All right, folks, that wraps it up tomorrow. We'll have running coverage of the Israeli elections and then we'll have the one week countdown to the American elections. For control of congress all of that plus some great guests tomorrow be sure to tune in until then may god bless you and god bless this extraordinary country of the united states as he always has you've been listening to john solomon reports the podcast from just the news folks everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bike